You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Episode 122 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band Saving Sydney. Utah-based pop-punk band Saving Sydney was unofficially founded in 2014 under the name North Shore. Through several lineup changes and a brief stint under the band name With Eager Eyes, Saving Sydney was officially founded in 2018. Saving Sydney combines distorted guitars with catchy melodic hooks over driving drum patterns. The result is a pop-punk sound that keeps you coming back for more. For more information on Saving Sydney, you can find them on all of the streaming platforms as well as Facebook and Instagram at Saving Sydney Band. Now here it is, their new single, Stay Gold.
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hey, this is Brian McTurnan from Be Well, and you're listening to That One Time on Tour. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, what is going on? As always, my name is Chris Swinney, and yes, I am your host for this podcast. If you are joining us for the first time, this is my podcast where I get to sit down with somebody in or around the entertainment industry and have a stellar conversation. This week is no different, but I'm not going to tell you who it is right away. First off, I hope you're doing well out there. The seasons are starting to change here in Indiana. It's starting to get colder and colder. I'm going out now after dark, like into my backyard, and it's oh, it's so nice. It's like 60 degrees, and it's not 95 degrees like it is during the day, and it feels so great. I went out last night and actually wore a hoodie. I have my hot water music hoodie, and I got it, broke it out of the closet, haven't worn it in almost a year. And I was able to wear a hoodie. I was very, very excited about that. That is my kind of weather. So uh, also, rumor has it here where I live in Muncie, Indiana, that Halloween is canceled. I'm sure that's probably happening across the country. Halloween is probably being canceled. Um, If it is, let me know. I want to know what you're going to do instead, because my kids love Halloween and I we're going to have to do something. I don't know what it's going to be, but uh it's going to involve some candy, I'm pretty sure. But uh, yeah, so if Halloween is canceled where you live, hit me up and let me know about it. I, w- I want to hear what you have planned for your kids or just for yourself. Because, you know, a lot of us love Halloween. Halloween is a time to listen to the Misfits and AFI and Bajas and all kinds of good stuff that just puts you in that Halloween mood. So, uh, yeah, just let me know what's going on with you in Halloween during this crazy pandemic that we are dealing with. But today on the program, it's a good one. Mr. Brian McTurnan from Salad Days Studio and the awesome Equal Vision Band. I can't speak today. The awesome Equal Vision Band, Be Well. Brian has produced so many great records by bands like Thrice, Hot Water Music, Circus Survive, and so many more, so many great records. His band Be Well has a brand new album out called The Weight and the Cost, and I am completely head over heels in love with this record. I have not stopped listening to it since they sent it to me like a month and a half ago. It's a super personal record, and we talk a lot about that on the program. And 
I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. We talk about his production stuff, which, I mean, he produced thrice. Some of some of my favorite records of theirs. I mean, I love all their records, but some of the heavier stuff. And he did circus. He did two of my favorite hot water music records ever. Caution and a flight and a crash. And just so much good stuff. The guy is amazingly talented, both as a musician and as a producer. And you're going to get to hear all of that cool stuff on our conversation today. But first, as always, I got to pay some bills. So uh, we have a couple sponsors today. The band that you guys heard at the beginning, Saving Sydney. They're out of Utah. You can check them out at Saving Sydney Band on Instagram and Facebook and on all of the socials. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring this episode. I really appreciate it. We also have my buddy Gary over at PartsCasterConcierge.com. He builds guitars. He consults on guitar builds. He does pedals. He does pedal enclosures. He does everything. So if you need anything like that, hit him up. PartsCasterConcierge.com. If you have a band or a company and you would like to sponsor an episode, you can hit me up, TOTOTPodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media platforms at TOTOTPodcast. Or you can just head on over to our brand spanking new website, TOTOTPodcast.com. Shout out to Sarah at Road Dog Supply for all the hard work on the new website. If you guys want to support the podcast, Head on over to patreon.com forward slash TOTOT podcast and get involved at one of the monthly tiers and uh, it would be amazing. You would really be helping me out. If you just want to do like a one-time little donation thing, like, you know, a tip or whatever, because you love the show so much, you can hit up my Venmo. It's at Christopher Swinney. That is C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-S-W-I-N-N-E-Y. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review Get a hold of me. Let me know what you're doing. Let me have some guest suggestions, whatever. I'm the easiest person in the world to get a hold of. I'm on all the socials. I return all my emails. So hit me up if you have any questions or anything. This is your show as much as it's my show. So I also want to shout out really quickly. The I did this promo, which I thought was really, really cool. I ask listeners from all over the world to send me little videos of them doing like the tagline, like the guests do like, Hey, this is so-and-so and and you're listening to that one time on tour. And I got so many submissions. It was crazy from all over the world. A lot of Australians. I'm I'm thinking that might be my biggest market. Uh, I don't know. A lot of Australians, but I had people from Serbia and the Ukraine and Japan and Canada and just all over the place, France, everywhere. So that's on uh, Instagram and Facebook. If you have not seen it, I'd like to give a shout out to everybody that took part in the video. I really appreciate you guys so much. And I could not do this show without you guys. So that's it for the little intro. I have a small segment today. I've had some people that uh, heard me on this thing called the rad dads or the rad dad show. It's a podcast about dads that like punk rock and skating and whatnot. I actually, we had a, a bonus episode. I put up the interview I had with Brett on this podcast. So uh, a lot of people had hit me up and they're like, Oh man, you talked about your dad. You used to talk about your dad a lot on your podcast. So uh, I'm going to do a dad story today. I, I had a lot of these back in the day, like when my dad made fun of the goo goo dolls to their face and my dad cussed out Carrie King from Slayer and all kinds of stuff. But I thought of another one today and this kind of goes hand in hand with this podcast. Um, my first punk show that I ever went to, 
was The Offspring, Rancid, and some local band called The Walkabouts at this venue called Second Avenue in Indianapolis. And it was on October 19th, 1994. And The Offspring were touring on Smash, you know, the, the their biggest record. Rancid was touring on Let's Go. And I just remembered that show just, it changed my life. And it was, it was crazy. For one thing, my dad got us out of football practice early because me and my friends that went, we were playing football and my dad, I think my dad lied to my coach. I don't don't know what he did. We had to drive the hour to Indianapolis and the venue was very close to this, uh, kind of hard war, like, like a Lowe's, but it's like regional. It's called Menards. It's it's here in the Midwest. And uh it was right really close to the venue and there was a line at the venue and I had to pee really bad and my dad had to pee really bad and there was nowhere to go pee. So at these places at Menards and like Lowe's they have like that those like display barns that you can build the little tiny like sheds. Well we found one of those and we all peed in those. You know, my dad's like in his fifties and he's, he's peeing in in a shed out front of Menards. It was pretty funny, pretty punk rock. (laughs) But, um, the cool thing about that was, is that he got back in line to wait for us while we went and pee. We didn't all go pee together. We had to wait in line because we had tickets, but you had to get in line because we got there early. We were kind of hoping we'd meet somebody from Offspring or, or whatever. And, uh, my dad actually did while we were over at the place, you know, going to the bathroom, uh, I guess noodles came out and was like shaking people's hands and signing stuff. I don't know. It was a small venue. This is like, this is October 94. This is before the whole green day offspring thing was massive. I mean, there was probably 500 people at this club, maybe less. So uh, yeah, noodles was just walking through the, the, the line outside and my dad like shook his hand and we came back and my dad's like, well, I met this guy named noodles. I think he's in that band you guys like. So yeah, that was a, that was a, it was a funny thing. My dad, he, he cussed out Carrie King from Slayer. Uh, he made fun of the Goo Goo Dolls to their faces. And yeah, he met Noodles from Offspring at my very first punk rock show back in 1994 and shook his hand and everything. He's like, yeah, I met this guy's name was Noodles. So I was a little upset that I didn't get to meet Noodles. Um, I would love to have him on the podcast. Maybe I'll hit up Pete and see if Pete can set it up for me because Pete was already on the show. But yeah, that was a funny story about my dad. I've got a bunch of them. I'm trying to remember them all and like write them down. But he took me to so many concerts. But yes, my first real punk rock show, October 19th, which is a cool thing. It's my daughter's birthday. 1994 with The Offspring, Rancid, and a local band. I think they were at a Bloomington, Indiana, maybe, called The Walkabouts. I need to check that out. I had it written down. But, uh, yeah, we peed in a wooden shed, and my dad met Noodles, and we missed meeting Noodles. (laughs) So I hope you guys enjoyed that story. And uh, that's it for the intro. So I'm just going to jump right into my conversation with Mr. Brian McTurnan from Salad Day Studios and Be Well. Here we go. And I'm on the line with Mr. Brian McTiernan from Be Well and, of course, the awesome Salad Days recording studio. How are you doing today, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm, I'm really 
thankful that you were able to reschedule this. Uh, as I talked about on my last episode or a couple episodes back, my, my dog passed away and it was the day we were supposed to do this originally. And you were very gracious in coming back and doing it again. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, I wanted to, you know, I start these off the same way because we're living in this weird time, which yeah. I'm sure it's affected you. It's weird. Cause like, if you go back like 20 years from now and listen to these episodes, I don't know if people will understand how weird it was. So I've been asking everybody at the top of the program, we're in this, the middle of this pandemic, you know, the coronavirus is upon us. How has that ef- kind of affected your life and like your normal day to day kind of stuff that you do? Um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's been weird. Um, the, I have been working, like I have my studio now at my house. So I've actually been working from home anyway. And then my wife is like involved in this like crazy shit with the government. She's a, like a federal whistleblower. So she hasn't worked in like a year and a half. (laughs) Yeah. So we're already kind of at home, but, um, you know, my, my daughter being home is, you know, it's fun, but also like, you know, it's, it's hard um, <laughs> at times, especially like I'm trying to do these podcasts or work on music or do things like that. It's like, there's, it's just, it's just, you know, you just have to adjust. Um, how, how old is your daughter, by the way? She's, she's 12. Okay. Cause I have toddlers. I have a four-year-old and a three-year-old and oh my gosh. mommy took them to grandma's today so we could do this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, I, I have to kind of be like, Hey guys, everybody needs to be quiet. And you know, just like, it's weird, but, and I feel bad for her just because I just remember when I was her age, the summer. And I mean, it's just such a transitional time in their life that, to not be able to be around other kids and do things like that sucks. But what was really heartbreaking was like things were really starting to click with be well. I mean, obviously I feel way worse for bands that like, you know, tour and their touring is actually like their livelihood for us. We lose money when we play. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So maybe that's a good, no, but what, what, what sucks is, Leading, uh, I mean, launching a new band is so hard. And and just in February and like January and February, the shows were really starting to click. And we had like our record release for the first seven inch we put out and that was sold out. And it was like people we didn't know were there singing along. And it was a really intimate night. And like, and it really felt like, the record's done, the shit's about to come out and everything's just moving in this really positive way. And then all of a sudden it was like done, you know? And now it's like, who fucking knows when we'll ever play again? Well, I mean, and and the thing is, you know, I've talked a lot on this podcast about, you know, bands that have had songs coming out or, or records coming out during this pandemic and what even the normal way to promote something is nowadays. I mean, you have to tour, because, I mean, that's right. the only way you're going to really make money. You just kind of made a joke about that. But most of the time now, I mean, nobody's buying CDs anymore. Nobody's buying stuff right. like that. So right. having this band be kind of a new venture and, you know, you've got the record coming out on Equal Vision. All the cylinders are firing. You get hit right. with that pandemic. Was there a meeting to try to figure out new avenues to promote? Was there anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that. The first thing we did was push the record back so that we could kind of like 
assess like how 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 long term is this whole thing like because at first it was like it was unclear it was like you know if the pandemic was going to blow over and then the fall was going to be like fertile touring ground then maybe you know you just hold the record back and and once it became clear that this wasn't going to get resolved and we, we you know we've been sitting on the record for a little while um we just decided to go ahead and put it out and it, in some ways to be honest it's it's good for us and like i feel like a lot of bands either made the decision to like hold the record back until they're able to go out and tour or other bands are are can't make records right now because it's you know you can't really be in the studio the way you typically could so i maybe you know as a new band maybe the fact that there's not as much out there does help us in some ways and the reality like the touring thing i mean we love to play and we want to play a lot but we're not going to be able to tour like 11 months a year like yeah. we could have when we were 19 anyway so there's like a small part of me that's kind of like maybe this is like is an okay time um and i also feel like like kind of the co- the content of the record is has a lot of like isolation and loneliness and and kind of like a lot of it was written at a time when i was spending a lot of time alone and kind of having to um process my innermost thoughts <laughs> and so it could be that like in terms of content that it's an okay time for it to come out as well. There's one track I'd like to kind of highlight that really affected me, and then we can go ahead and talk about more of the history of how the group got together and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But the final track, uh, which is Confessional, uh, yeah. very emotional song. I, you know, going through and kind of really paying attention to the lyrics, which I'm not really a lyric guy. I'm a, I'm a riff guy. <laughs> That's how right. I've always been. <laughs> right. But yeah. I was really kind of taken aback by the lyrics. I mean, being a father, I could kind of almost tell that you're talking kind of to your daughter in that yeah. song. And, and it's very fitting for the times that we're living in and worrying about the future and getting yourself right, right and making sure that she's right. Like it really yeah. affected me. And I really connected with that song. Can you take me through maybe the writing process of that song? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, let's see a lot of the record is that's kind of the lens of the whole, it's not, it's far from a concept record, but that is, that is how I'm processing the world right now, which is like, holy shit, like I'm not in a good place. And then I'm also responsible for like raising this young woman. And like, and I like, I so desperately, like I grew up so uncomfortable with like my emotions and so like unable to like, you know, share what I was feeling with the the people around me. And it really did cause a lot of damage internally and you know i i um i i've spent a lot of time thinking about not only you know i'm not worried i don't worry about like whether i'm going to pass like the genetic loading for depression on to my daughter what i really worry about is setting an example for her where she feels like she can be herself she can be okay with who she is and even like and she doesn't feel like she needs to hide those aspects of herself from the world. Um, and um, so, I mean, I think for me, confessional is like, you know, it's 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 reflecting on that. And then it's also kind of reflecting on like a lot of my inner dialogue that has been 
unhealthy is, you know, feeling like, you know, feeling like a failure or feeling like not worthy of the success I've had in my life or feeling like I'm not the person that the people around me think that I am. And, and also ha- having the understanding that that's totally not a reasonable thing <laughs> to be thinking. I mean, I, I have had, you know, unbelievable luck and success and, and, um, I've had just this magical journey professionally and like I married my my high school sweetheart you know what I mean like I I dropped out of high school and became a wildly successful music producer I had bands on major labels I've toured the world and somehow the way that I see myself is as not worthy and not like not actually that that person and so and I've never talked about that and I never shared it. And, 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 you know, you wake up one day and you realize like, man, like this thing that wasn't even a reasonable thought to have in the first place, like has like haunted me for decades, you know? And then you also have the feeling that's like, 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 I mean, I felt a lot of shame about depression and my mental health and things like that. And I've never felt comfortable sharing it with people. And I had to say to myself, like, fuck, man, all I want in the world, I'm not worried about like with my daughter about like boys or girls or whatever the fuck she's into. I'm not, I want her to do well in school, but what I want more than anything is for her to be okay with whoever the fuck she is. And then I have to look at myself and be like, how can I, want that for her and expect that for her when I can't do that for me. And so I think that confessional is kind of like me opening up about that and kind of admitting all of that to myself all at the same time. That makes sense. Has that been something that you've kind of carried with you throughout your life? Or was that something that happened once the fame started, like the success started happening? Um, no, it's been my, it's been my whole life. I mean, I think that, um, I think that that um I might I my I think that I was like in going to therapy when I was like in second grade and like you know my um we had like I grew up in a pretty like troubled household I mean there was a lot of fighting and a lot of anger and there was a lot of you know my my parents both in totally different ways have struggled with mental health my mom is like was a nun and is like, you know, just just so much emotion. And then my dad was like, his father died when he was 10. Then he went to Vietnam and he grew up really poor and can't share any emotion. Yeah. And is so anxious and so obsessive that he can hardly function in the world. And so, you know, it like my brother and I both, um, my older brother sings in Damnation AD and, um, he, you know, both of us like have had really like pretty, you know, like have struggled with our own sense of self, I think, in our lives and have kind of responded. When I was a kid, I lashed out and man- it manifested as like anger. And my older brother, like, just he kind of internalized it and all. Um, and then I think the, I mean, in some ways, before I was successful, it was easier because 
I didn't really have any hope for my life. You know, I I didn't, I dropped out of school. We grew up not poor, but far from wealthy. Like the people that were, like my wife was like going to Harvard and I'm dropping out of school. And I didn't really have like any expectations and I didn't even process it as depression. It was just like, I was angry and upset and felt isolated from the world. The thing that the success that I had, the thing that made it hard um, is that I felt like, you know, like I, I, I think there definitely was part of me that was like, I started producing records when I was 18. And a lot of the times I was the youngest person in the room. I'm trying to like, earn the respect of labels and bands and the the people in the room. And you know, the 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 producer is the fearless leader of the ship. And he's the boss most of the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I think that like, you know, you, you know, early on, I uh in order to kind of um put myself out there as someone who can handle that responsibility and can be in charge and can help the bands and the labels achieve their ultimate goals, I hit a lot of that from them. And then it wasn't that big of a deal because I had other friends and I had other things going on. And slowly as like the studio became more and more and more of my life, like every day. And then slowly as like all of the people that are my, I hate to call them clients, but like the people I'm making records with actually became my entire social universe pretty much every single person around me in my life had really no idea how much kind of internal turmoil I was going through. And that's a really hard conversation to have all of a sudden, Yeah, you know? And so, um, interestingly, I never even quite processed it because I knew that I was having a lot of those feelings and the way that I dealt with it was to just pour all that intensity into making the records. Which made some pretty fucking awesome records. <laughs> I mean, you've made... I was going through my CD collection, like, because, yes, I'm an old school guy. I still have CDs. Yeah. And uh, literally, I mean, I have almost everything you've done, which is kind of a weird thing. When, when Alexa yeah. hit me up to, to have you on the show, I was like, well, yeah. yeah, I've liked his stuff, his music, and his production for so yeah. long. But I actually went through my, like, 200, 300 case CD thing that I used to take on tour with me. Right. And, Literally, you are, as far as your producing goes, you are the top. I have so many CDs that you've produced. Yeah, that's and, so cool. And then the, the funny thing is, too, I've got a lot of Matt Squire's stuff, too, which you played in a band right. with, which right. I, I just yeah. think that's such a unique thing that you guys played in this band, Battery, and then both of you guys have these great producing careers also. Yeah, so Matt and I, Matt Matt actually only played guitar solos on a battery 7-inch and but then we we were in Ashes, a band called Ashes okay. together. Okay. And we were kind of like um kind of like musical soulmates in a in a way and like we were a really fantastic team because he's a brilliant writer and I always had like a real knack for kind of knowing like the color and the feel and having a vision for that side of things. And so together, I think we both pushed each other. And like, I I mean, I definitely can say that, you know, I think he would probably say the same thing. I think we both kept raising the bar and really brought out the best in one another and really kind of took, you know, inspired one another to like 
become better musicians, become better producers, become better songwriters. And um, yeah, so we so we were in Ashes together, and then we were in um, in we started a band when we were nineteen called Milltown, and we signed to Warner Brothers. And then that was a disaster. We made a record with a shitty producer and basically broke up. <laughs> I actually, I was going to save this for later, but I have listener questions. I always ask social media, social media people if they want to like, yeah, ask questions. I, I, I love that. Yeah. And uh, Daniel from Germany said, after Battery, you had a band called Milltown. Uh, right. Will the full length that was recorded ever see the light of day? Will it ever come okay. out? Well, so actually Milltown and Battery were actually at the exact same time. And actually both bands broke up like two months apart, <laughs> which was painful and crazy. Yeah. But, um, but no, I don't think that the actual Milltown record that we recorded will ever see the light of day because we were on Warner Brothers and the only thing that exists is like a cassette copy of the rough mixes. Really? Yeah. No masters anywhere. I mean, it could be that they're somewhere, but like we we've attempted to try and get them and and it it has not yeah. it has not happened. So um the demos that I did are on Bandcamp. Um and they're cool, but they were all tracked live, even vocals, and um it was a good band. I mean it was the singer Jonah Jenkins was like still to this day, like one of the best singers i've ever heard i tell you I, the funny thing was i was looking through uh i always research these a little bit just so i kind of have some notes you know to make sure that the conversation continues to go and i i read it wrong the first time and i thought it said you were in midtown no <laughs> right yeah a lot of people get that wrong yeah and then i but, saw oh it's milltown okay so the interesting thing with matt squire was when um i mean we had been playing in Ashes all through high school, and then we did Mil- then we did Milltown together. And then when Milltown broke up and Battery broke up, I solely focused on production, and I just decided like I'm going to just focus on this. And early on, Matt was actually assisting me. It like like he you know he did the Pro Tools engineering on thrice. Um, the artist in the ambulance, and he helped me with the last hot water record. Helped me with a lot of records, and um, and I always kind of encouraged him to like be a producer as as well. And um, and then I mean, he, he did a couple records, and then that panic record came, and it yeah. was like boom. <laughs> and then interestingly, Matt ended up buying my old studio from me, and still is there. So I had a studio in Beltsville, Maryland that Matt bought and I moved my studio to Salad Days to Baltimore and he still has a studio there. That's awesome. I just think it's so yeah. great that you guys, you know, came from the same, like, like you said, you were musical soulmates kind of, and now you both had the yeah. success in that realm. Have you guys yeah. ever, I mean, not a band you were both in, but have you ever worked on like co-producing or is it always just kind of like he's no. just assisting, you're no. assisting? Well, we haven't because, I mean, it all happened so fast. I mean, if you actually look at the time between him as a Pro Tools engineer on The Artist in the Ambulance and then how quickly the panic at the disco record happened. I think that was like 
the third record he ever produced. That's crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's it's like crazy, man. Quadru- but he's so he's so talented. Um, the funny thing, the other thing is the I don't know if you know who Paul Levitt is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's 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 another producer. So when Matt stopped obviously being able to assist me in the studio because he's busy producing multi-platinum records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Paul Levitt ended up becoming, you know, the dude that helped me with that kind of stuff. And he now has gold and platinum records. And it's like, I don't know, like I I I I do um I do take some pride in in having like one help like help helping them early on kind of like and nurturing them as young producers and like seeing how much amazing stuff that they've gone on to do. So I think the moral of the story is producers out there, if you want to be, you know, a million dollar producer, you got to go work with Brian. <laughs> <for a while>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it, I mean, my thing always is that like, I love talented people. I just like collect them. I love, I love being surrounded by people that like, blow my mind continually and continue to surprise me. So I'm always, I mean, whether it's like musicians or artists or anybody that is like knows things about the world that I don't know, I want them in my life. That's awesome, man. Well, if you ever need any podcasting assistance, let me know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're my guy. Hey guys, it's Chris breaking into the action to tell you about a brand new sponsor for the podcast, Spam. Not Spam, Spam. What is Spam, you say? Is it music? Is it art? A label? A poster? Or a festival? Spam combines all of this and so much more. S-B-A-M. Four letters in punk rock to watch out for. There is hardly any band or artist in the punk rock world that has not worked with Spam before. For the latest news, records, art, or to check out their iconic music festival, please visit www.sbam.rocks. That is www.sbam.rocks. So, uh, I want to talk more about the new band and the new record, the Another thing that I really liked, I listened to the whole record. Alexis sent it to me. Uh, the weight and the cost is the name of the record. The title track, it kind of blew me away, man. It, it's if this, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's really good. But if this was maybe ten years ago, it would be on the radio, right? <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. they don't really play stuff like that now. You know what I mean? But right. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing with the record is like. It. So that song in particular, the weight and the cost is it's definitely outside of the kind of like, you know, there's plenty of songs on the record that just feel like cool, old school, high energy, hardcore songs. Yeah. And the weight and the cost, that song is definitely um, a different mood than it all. But I do think it, it still fits. And uh, honestly, like, <laughs> I really like. I wanted that song to feel kind of like somewhere between like Pedro the Lion and Hot Water Music. That was like my feeling with like the riffing and the and the vocal approach and 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 things like that. So, um, but that song, like we were talking about, um, 
you know, fatherhood and all of this stuff earlier. That song is essentially um, after the second Be Well show, Dan from Equal Vision actually said to me, man, hearing you see these, sing these songs and seeing your daughter watch you sing these songs, that's like heavy, you know, that's like, and are you okay with that? Like, are you comfortable with um, having her see this side of you? And I actually had to like, think about that because that's, you know, that, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. You know what I mean? Like this, it's a very personal record. It's a very like, um, the vulnerable record. It's a vulnerable record. And like, there's a lot of things that might be hard for someone that is like her age to kind of understand with it. And ultimately I just kind of decided that, um, that like, if she doesn't know that part of me, then she's not going to ever really know me. And I also, you know, I kind of hope that like, you know, like with the thing about like kind of trying to deal with your inner demons, whether it's like, whether it's like addiction or depression or like dealing with like having been abused or, or things that are just like really hard to just kind of like open up and share. Honestly, in some ways it's like, it's easier to hide it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's easier to numb that and to put it aside and bury it like it never happened. But the, the cost on not only you, not only for you, but also for the people around you when you bury those things is immeasurable. And I kind of just like that song is about me kind of saying like, like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that this might be hard for you as well, you know? And like, hopefully that like, she will understand that kind of when I was at my darkest, where I was, that it wasn't that I just like, didn't care about her, didn't care about my wife or that I was actually like dealing with something that was pretty heavy. And I was, you know, the reality, but they don't tell you about parenting. Everybody in the world says, oh, it's the fucking best thing ever. It's the best thing ever. Oh my God, it's the best thing ever. It is the best thing ever. But, and my daughter is like the center of my universe, but like that didn't, doesn't mean that like, you stop experiencing highs and lows and you, (laughs) I still have had disappointments and regrets and I have things about myself that I'm trying to work on and trying to navigate that while also trying to be a great parent, which is something that I aspire to be is not simple. You know, it's, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. And like, I kind of look at like my parents and, now I can see that, like, oh my God, my dad had a severe OCD and he was PTSD from Vietnam and my mom had all of this stuff. Well, when I was a kid, I had no fucking idea. I just thought they were assholes, Yeah, you know? And I just hated my dad. And now with my perspective, I can see, like, he wasn't, isn't okay. And he never did anything about it. And, like, am I going to be that person or am I going to be the kind of person that can say to my daughter, this is what's happening with me. Like if I come home and I'm like, you know, you have a lens to be able to understand that it's it's not you that's making me feel this way. And it's not that I don't love you and that you guys don't bring me joy. It's that like, 
I have, you know, 40 some years of life that I'm trying to process as well. So speaking of, you know, how much these songs are vulnerable and, you know, they're very emotional and it's kind of, you know, wearing your heart on your sleeve and just telling your story. What was the writing process like? Are you going in with like poem, not, not like poems, but like sheets of paper with lyrics and they, the other guys are jamming riffs? Like, how did that go about? Um, no. Well, so I'm trying to think of. So a lot of the the the, the initial riffs, I I I started just. I I hadn't actually written my own music in 20 years. So I had been doing a lot of co-writing with bands and arrangement and working on songs with bands. And, um, but when I kind of like, I took a little break from music and then I realized that that was a big mistake. And I started writing again for the first time and, um, kind of the approach to writing the Be Well record was like, I wasn't trying to write a record. I was trying to have a, a creative outlet and I didn't, I wasn't sure what it was going to become, but I just felt more connected to the world when I was being creative. And, um, so I just kind of, I made a commitment to, um, actually it's funny because one of the, 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 um, it was a podcast, the lead singer syndrome podcast and Anthony green from Circo was on there. And he was, he was talking about how your creativity is like a muscle that needs to be exercised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I was really inspired by that and really did try and do that. And I and I started writing every day and I just said to myself, I'm not going to listen back to any of this and I'm not going to judge any of this. I'm just going to sit down with a guitar every day and lay down riffs and if I don't have riff ideas, I'm going to write lyric ideas and and I just amassed a whole bunch of kind of concepts, which I'm really glad that I did because, um, you know, you only have one time when you're doing a band to write without having the monologue of all the things that people like and don't like about your band yeah, yeah, <laughs> later. Yeah. And I think that's why sophomore slump is a thing in a lot of ways, you know, like I, a lot of these ideas started like just as some riff. And then anytime I got to a point where I felt like I wasn't having new ideas, then I would go back and re and finally listen to those ideas. And basically any, the, the songs that kind of ended up coming to the band and getting developed by the band were all, were the ones that I had strong vocal ideas over the riffs. And, um, and then from writing the vocals, <laughs> I have tons and tons and tons of pages of just thoughts and ideas and phrases and and things like that. Um, but honestly, like, I, I I would just kind of like, I would just like go, like we I would demo the song and then I would go and I would just like, when I was feeling emotional or I was feeling like I had something I wanted to get out, I would just go and kind of like almost freestyle over it, melodies and sounds and syllables and things like that. And then often there would be like things that I would like feel like I almost heard myself saying. And then I would dive into my lyric book and be like, oh, this fits that. And then just nine times out of 10, once I get like, 
would get like a line or two that felt good, the rest of the song would just write itself. So when you guys are in the studio, I mean, that's one thing when I, I've heard, oh, Brian has a band now. I knew before I heard it, it was going to sound good, <laughs> like <laughs> right. at least production wise, right? Yeah. So uh, right. when you guys are in the studio recording this debut, what are the differences between maybe when you're working with a band that you were hired to work with, as opposed to working with a band that you're so invested in and you actually wrote the songs? Like, is there a big dichotomy between the two? Yes. I mean, and it resulted in us actually tracking the record twice because the first time um, we did it, we didn't have a full, we didn't have the full band and we hired a studio drummer and we went in and I kind of approached it without, I didn't have a good strategy. So I kind of was like super, like when I went to track my own voice, one, the drums, it was kind of too perfect in some ways. Like you get the studio drummer and it's just, it just, I don't know. It just didn't feel right. And then when I tracked my vocals, I, I was sitting there and just, instead of just pouring my heart out, I was going, how did that sound? How did that? And stopping and listening and going back and going. And it just like, at the end of the day, it was like, this doesn't feel emotional. This doesn't feel vulnerable. This doesn't feel emotional. This doesn't feel special. And we made the tough decision to to start over. And the next time we did it, we um went we took a much looser approach to tracking all the rhythm instruments and the drums and all that. And then when I went to track my vocals, I took a similar approach to how I had written, which was I didn't listen to any of it back. I would when I was feeling like I would be able to kind of emotionally deliver what I needed to, I would go and just like do like four or five passes of the song, pour my heart into it, not worry about what I was getting or not getting in, and then not even listen to it and come back several days later when I wasn't feeling emotional, comp together the best bits of what I had. And then if there was like something I felt like I could still hit better, I would just punch it. And once I started doing that, we were able to get like the, the um, emotion and the vulnerability and the kind of like swing that I feel like a hardcore record needs to have. It just can't be machine tight the way like a darkest hour record is. And so then um, once we got like all the main vocals, all the rhythm stuff, then I felt like I could just be the producer and we built all the layering and like the, I think one of the things that's fun about the record is that on an initial listen, you can just think, Oh, this is just a straight high energy hardcore record. But if you really listen, there's actually a ton of like cool, subtle guitar work and a lot of layering and a lot of ambient stuff. And there are like some nuggets of joy that, you're not going to find until a couple listens in. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing I've always liked about your production is the layering and the ear candy stuff. You know, if you listen yeah. with headphones, you get a little bit right. more out of it. Right. So right. I was wondering, you know, all the way back to the early days where you're doing Texas is the reason and you're doing all that stuff when you were super young, has that always been around or like, did you always think, cause me as a songwriter, I'm not really a producer, but like I do demos in my room and I'm doing these songs and I never know when to stop adding stuff. 
Like, where does right. that come into your work? Well, I think that like early on, uh, early on, I wasn't doing like a lot of that. I mean, I've always loved, I've always loved production. Yeah. I've always like, like I grew up listening to a ton of like The Cure and all of that dreamy atmospheric stuff where like every time you listen, there's something you you didn't know was there. I've always loved that. And, um, but really, I mean, the interesting thing about being a, a producer is the bands really kind of keep raising the bar too. Like, you know, you go in with like a cave-in and you're learning from how their brilliance or a thrice or a hot water music strike anywhere. Like, like I'm a sponge for all of these other guys, like awesome ideas and more of like, once you've kind of made a few records that feel as good as some of those records feel, you start being able to go, what does this still need? Or what is too much? And it's like a feel thing, not like a cerebral decision thing. It's not like a template of we do all of this and then it's done. Like, no, I mean, in some ways I, 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 you know, it's the total opposite of a template. I mean, because I feel like, I feel like, um, you know, and, and for better or worse, I feel like had I been using a template sonically, I might have a more impeccable record, but I feel like when I've hit it out of the park, I've really hit it out of the park. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and I'll take that every day. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm looking for home runs, not base hits. Well, as far as hitting it out of the park, there's a couple records that I wanted to bring up and just to see if you had any nuggets of, you know, some stories or something. Uh, I'm a huge hot water music fan. And my two favorite hot water records are flight and a crash and caution, which are two records that you did. Um, Yeah. How was it when you first met those guys and how was it in the studio with Chuck and all those guys? I mean, well, I first I first met them because Ashes played with them in Providence. And first of all, I mean, I think we're the same age. But I remember thinking they were about like 15 years older. <laughs> it's the <laughs> beards and the flannel, man. Because they had like the beards and they were just like raging. You know what I mean? And then they could like really play. I remember oh, yeah. being like, wow, wow, that like... That is like some shit I've never I've never fucking heard before. And um and then Flight in a Crash is an interesting record because they were one of the first bands. I had done a lot of records on labels, but almost every band I'd ever done for a label was a band that like I don't want to say I developed, but like a band that like like Caven, you know when they first came to record with me, they were like 15. Yeah. You know, or like the movie life came down and did like a seven inch. And we kind of like eased towards me doing their first record. And that was the situation with almost every band I was, had been involved with. And hot water was really like one of the, was probably the first band that like, I wasn't involved with the development. They signed to a big label and chose me to be the producer. And like that was that was I mean it was huge um it was I mean I think I think they're one of the best bands that's ever existed. I mean I, I agree with and, you. <laughs> completely. And I know that 
I know that they're some of the best human beings that have existed in the world. So to have people that like, I already like respected so much kind of make that decision. It was big for me. And then (laughs) the crazy thing about flight in a crash was, I mean, you have to keep in mind, I think I was probably like 22 or 23 and fucking Brett Gerwitz flies out (laughs) to spend a week with us in the studio. Yeah. So it's like, the dude is like, you know, been around it all. Of is course, sitting yeah. in the in the back of the room while I'm like, uh, <laughs> you know, just try. so. Flight in a Crash was an interesting record because I think I was kind of like getting my feet wet as more of a producer and less of just an engineer, and they were a band that was so good already that. I don't know that they'd ever really had anybody say, you're fucking rad, but you could be better. And I think there was a lot of, you know, it wasn't like, there there was tension, but like in a good way. Like not, you know, it was like, I grew so much from working with them. And I feel like, you know, they probably grew a bit from working with me. And Flight in a Crash was definitely like, a lot of like budding heads and a lot of like stress. And um, one of the things that I found stressful is to me, hot water is like, um, there's such, their lyrics are so important to, you're not a lyric guy. Well, but, but I, hot water, I am. Right. So, right. So that's how even important they are because they even touch me and I'm not a lyric guy. So I, I feel like on Flight in a Crash, there's probably things that I could have handled better. There's probably things they could have handled better. And then, and we had this like amazing kind of like, I think everybody probably left the studio from Flight in a Crash thinking we're never going to work together again. Yeah. But, and then as the record, you have some time distance from it. I think they understood that even things that that it bothered them about what I pushed them on that I had. It was from a, a place of love and wanting the record to be special. And I also kind of learned that like when you're talking to like there are, you have to be able to tailor your approach to the people that you're working with. And I think that like kind of trying to butt heads like Chuck Reagan and Chris Waller is never going to get anything, anybody anywhere. Like, you have to kind of be able to get into their headspace, understand what their vision is, and then help them refine that and and not just kind of like have a battle of wills. And so we had like a really great conversation that was like very frank about like the things we all liked about the experience and the things that we felt like could be different. And um, and then I ended up before caution, I ended up flying down to Florida. And we like did pre-production for caution on their turf, which was great. And one one of the highlights of my entire production career was I remember saying to the guys, like, one of the things that made the record stressful was that the lyrics weren't finished. And like, you know, you guys are you're wanting to experiment with sounds and you're wanting to do all this stuff. And it's hard for me to like go there with you because I'm stressed about the songs not being done. And like the, one of the commitments they made to me was the lyrics would all be done and that 
like we and my commitment to them was we'll focus on getting all these different tones and doing approaching the recording the way that you want to. And so the first day of recording caution, um, my studio, my wife and I lived in the house upstairs and then the bands lived in the basement and there was this like sliding glass door going to the band's apartment and, um, they got to our house in the middle of the night, so I wasn't awake when they got there. And so I went down in the morning to wake them up and say hi and welcome them. And I walked up to the sliding glass door, and Chuck and Chris had taped all the lyrics for the whole record <laughs> to the door. And the first thing I saw when I went to like day one of that record was they held up their end of the bargain. That's, you know? that's awesome. And that is so and, great. And, and and you know what? The lyrics on that record are just... They're amazing, man. They're just amazing. I mean, I i actually... It's pretty... Like, I recently remixed Caution. Okay. And I literally sat there and felt like, you know, with the perspective of 15 years, like, man, this is... Like, I am so fortunate to get to have been a part of things that are this meaningful. It's not just that they feel this meaningful to me. I can see that in the world, it really has touched so many people and all of the things that like the bands and myself and everybody have kind of sacrificed in order to create this music really does matter and really does connect with people. And the fact that people are still listening to it and that we're still talking about it, you know, 20 years later is amazing. I mean, it, it really is fucking amazing. Well, another band that has really affected me and that I just love dearly, every record they put out is Thrice. And, and you know, you did Illusion of Safety, you did Artist in the Ambulance. I think you yeah. did some work on uh, the DVD, that special release, If Only They yep. Could See Us yep. Now or whatever that's called. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Thrice is one of those bands where every record is different. Right. And I mean, maybe people, you know, there's a lot of evolution from their stuff they're doing now back to artists in the ambulance maybe there was less between illusion of safety and artists in the ambulance but when you met those guys and you started working with them did you i mean could you tell how great those records were going to be and i mean i think that's the consensus of their fans i mean even if you love their new stuff those two records are seminal records in their career yeah um yeah so <laughs> the fun the funny thing with um the illusion of safety is that that um the um it like i had they sent me the demos and i had really liked the band and they sent me the demos and like dustin on the demos they sent me he wasn't like singing it was all kind of screamy and i was like i i i was actually like in hong kong on vacation with my wife and i sent them an email like kind of like a panic like dudes <laughs> what the fuck like almost like maybe i'm the wrong guy you know like if this is what you're going for and um anyway they um i mean th those guys like so the funny thing is those guys were like the one of the first bands that i ever worked with that like took they're playing so seriously like i'll never forget coming down and like eddie having like bass player magazine and the, you know what I mean? Like he was like a real fucking bass player. Like he took that shit 
so seriously and was like so good. And um, I mean, I had never heard anything that sounded like thrice. Yeah. And, and I mean, to this day, they're absolutely some of the best players, best songwriters and like inspiring people to kind of be around because they're all like individually. So like a band like that, where like every single guy in the band is so fucking talented and so smart. And like, it's like, they're really, really like kind of like, they're like blending a whole bunch of things that I loved so much in this way that didn't feel like fusion. It felt like just a new sound entirely. And it's pretty rare that you hear something that feels entirely new. And 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 Dustin was such an incredible lyricist. And then he has this compelling, like, I don't know, like in the early, on like artist and um, illusion of safety, this like young endearing voice that like cuts across a room. Like you can walk in the room, you hear it and it's fucking thrice like, you know? So, um, illusion of safety was, was a wild, crazy, like tracked it all to tape, no click, you know, no editing, like just like as old school of an approach to making a record as, you could and and um and then and i don't think we butted heads but like i pushed them a lot and um there's it's funny because there's a song on illusion of safety called beltsville crucible and um i think that it's about that experience like the first line is true true friends stab you in the front yeah <laughs> but they talk about uh like cutting through graveyards or something because there's like yeah, a graveyard so there, by the studio there was a great yeah there's a graveyard right across the street from the studio and um true friends stab, yeah. you, stab you in the front yep yep That's yeah awesome. and um so anyway i love those i mean i i still talk to them all the time i i i think i'm i think that that is a band that is really important in the world and has like they're so smart and they have such a like a true sense of self and like they've made so many great records and they've always like taken great bands on tour and have just been like you know such a pillar in this community well speaking of that i have a a listener question uh noah from texas says the snare on thrice's illusion of safety was very unique was that intentional or was that just how the snare sounded when you guys mic'd it up uh so the, the interesting thing is that snare drum we used on that record was this dw it was like half brass half maple and i don't think like it was always breaking this snare drum. So I, I, I can't remember how it came together. Like they flew out and didn't bring any of their gear. So Riley just kind of picked through what I had and figured out what he, he liked. And, um, it sounds kind of crazy, but it's cool. You know what I mean? It's not like it does sound different, Yeah, which is, I think cool. And, um, the funny thing is after that record, I don't think I'd ever used it on a record before that. And after that record, it kind of, it broke. 
And it took me a long time to get it fixed. And when I finally got it fixed, I actually gave it to Riley. Awesome, man. <laughs> because I just felt like it is a unique sounding snare drum and I just wanted him to have it. Awesome. Well, Noah, thank you yeah. for your question. I think you got your answer there, man. <laughs> I, I tell you what, man, I've got one more listener question and then uh, we yeah. can tie this up. I've had you on the line for a while. I know you're a busy guy. Sure. So, uh, uh, the last listener question from Jace, Jason from Wyoming. He said, did you ever get any feedback from Ian after naming your studio Salad Days? I did not ever get any feedback from Ian directly, but I lived in... Um, the do you, are you familiar with the band Cast Iron Hike? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Jake, the singer of Cast Iron Hike, who is also has um does Disgraceland podcast, which is massive. It's an awesome podcast, um, yeah. Yeah. So we lived together and Cast Iron Hike played a show with Fugazi, and Jake gave Ian CD that we had recorded together. And one day we got a postcard to the apartment that was like, Hey, I enjoyed the CD. And is Salad Days named after a minor threat song? Very cool. And I just went, Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, I, fig I figured like, he seems like a really good guy. Like my friend Dewey, yeah, uh, that does the Pure Pleasure podcast. I'm on the same network that I'm on. He had Ian on, and it's, it's an unreal conversation. If you need to check it out, if you haven't checked it out. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'll check that out. I mean, I've met him a couple times. His sister, Amanda, I've known for a long, long time. And uh, it's funny because I'm like, like, I love Ian's band so much that I, I don't need to like, I don't even want to be like friends with him. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I, I like having some people that I idolize that feel otherworldly and not that I think he would be anything but awesome, but like I'm totally comfortable just being a fan. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Well, hey, man, uh, I've had you on the line for a long time. I'm going to let you get going. Before you get out of here, I know that the record is coming out on Equal Vision on August 21st. People can stream it. They can probably pre-order and do all that stuff now. Um, what are your plans? I know that the the pandemic kind of squashes people's plans, but do you have anything in the pipeline you can talk about? Yeah, well, we're working on trying to figure out if we're experimenting with whether some sort of live stream thing would be able to translate the music appropriately. Um, and we've been experimenting with some different ways of doing that. And then we we currently have a European tour booked for March, and that feels like maybe a stretch, but things are much more under control there. So maybe with this much lead time, maybe that will actually happen. Cool. And do you have any, uh, any bands that you're slated to start producing or are you just concentrating musically um, right now? Well, I'm, I'm working, um, I'm working on a bunch of different things. Like, like I'm working on, um, the, the, I'm doing some writing with some different people through Zoom and Skype and stuff. And then I'm just doing the vocals on the new Praise record. A lot of the studio projects I had, I'm just not really wanting to be. I don't, I just couldn't sit for 12 hours with a mask on and yeah. trying to be, you know, creative. So the timing ended up being okay because I've been able to kind of do this kind of thing and like, um, I'm doing a lot of writing right now and just trying to make the most out of it. 
Cool, man. I It was an honor to have you on the show today. I've always loved it. Oh, yeah. Work. It was a pleasure. And, Thank uh, you so much. We're Facebook friends now, so uh, we can keep in touch. Uh, I love that. <laughs> okay, man. Well, thank you so much, and we'll talk soon. I'll talk to you later, man. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. So there it was, my conversation with Brian McTurnan from Salad Days Studio and Be Well. Make sure to check out the new Be Well record, The Weight and the Cost, out now on Equal Vision Records. Brian has always been one of my favorite producers, and it was so great to get to chat with him. And it was cool that we got to talk about the new record that I love so much, but then we also got to talk about production stuff. And he was just a great guy and just so open and just honest about everything. And and I just can't wait to have him back for a part two in the future. But you guys need to go out and get a copy of The Weight and the Cost. Get some vinyl. You know, it's it's such a good record. You guys are going to love it. I love it. Like I said on the intro, I have not stopped listening to The Weight and the Cost since they sent it to me. And uh, I was just listening to it today in my car while I was running errands. So go out, Equal Vision Records, be well, the weight and the cost. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much for coming back every week. I really appreciate the support, especially all my listeners all over the world that sent in videos for the new promo. Thank you guys so much. I could not do this without you. So many great episodes coming in the coming weeks, coming in the coming weeks. Yeah, there you go. Uh, just great guests that you guys aren't going to believe and that you're going to love it. It's going to be great. So make sure that you are subscribed wherever you listen so you don't miss anything at all. Also, make sure to head on over to TOTOTpodcast.com. Sign up for our new mailing list. I promise I will not spam you at all. Please just sign up for the mailing list and check out new limited edition merchandise with our new logo. Shirts are going fast. It's limited. So get in there and get you a shirt, get you a tote bag, get a mask that we have all kinds of cool stuff. And it all just goes to further this podcast to get better quality, better content. So if you guys could help us out, buy some merch, do whatever, just, you know, subscribing, just listening is enough. So thank you so much. If you're hearing this in your ear holes, I love you and you are one of my best friends. <laughs> so. Before I jump out of here, like always, I got to play some music and uh, I'm going to play some Be Well music. This is, I'm serious. This might be one of my favorite releases of 2020 and there's been some good stuff come out in 2020. There's been a lot of shit in 2020 as far as, you know, viruses and, <laughs> and fires and natural disasters and stuff like that. But the music that's come out has been pretty awesome. And this is no exception. Be well. The weight and the cost is such a good record. I'm not just, no one paid me to do this. I love this record. You have to go check it out. So I'm going to play one of my favorite tracks on the new record. It is called Confessional. Hit me up on the socials. See you guys next week. This is Chris. Peace. Oh,
Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. <laughs> 